And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. You lost your magic. They knocked you off your game. Your Carlness went right out the window. What's with this Carlness? It's not even a, a real word. It's a conjunction of prepositions. It's a philosophy, a way of life. It's your name with miss attached to it. Bob, listen to me. If you'd have done what I asked you to and come in my dressing room before the show, you'd have known that you weren't supposed to come out here until I introduced you. Jack, I tried to get into your dressing room, but I didn't have a nickel. I understand you're pretty funny as a DJ. And comedy is a kind of hobby of mine. Well, well, actually, it's a little more than just a hobby. Reader's Digest is considering publishing two of my jokes. Really? Yeah. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Money Dollar. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, I'll present a classic radio detective adventure of Philip Marlowe, starring Gerald Moore, and then it's the first portion of a classic radio comedy episode of The Halls of Ivy, starring Ronald and Benita Coleman. But first, let me say hello to my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hey, Carl. Glad to be here, as always. What's going on? You know, it's been a week, huh? Yeah. So well, here I am, back here with you. Yeah, you don't look a week older. Thank you. Yeah, still dimply. <laughs> yes, which is apparently a Very birth good. defect. Yes, it is a birth defect. <laughs> so what's happening in the world of Hollywood? Well, uh, Will Smith is in the news this week. Okay. He is going to receive the Generation Award at the 2016 MTV Movie Awards, which, of course, celebrates great achievement in movies. So he was nominated for an MTV Movie Award 17 times. He won five of them, and this award show airs in April at the Warner Brothers Studio in the back lot in Burbank, California. Some of the presenters include Zach Efron. Don't you know him? Yeah, no. You know him for- no, no? Oh, I, I thought you know. did. <laughs> Zach and I, we go way back. You go way back. Well, he's he's young, like you. Charlize Theron, Chris Hemsworth, and, um, of course, Will Smith has been in the headlines a lot recently, especially in January, when he and his wife... Jetta Pinkett Smith would not eat a watch or attend the uh, Academy Awards. Yeah, the Oscars, right. Right. So that was sort of a, a big to do. Some of the other recipients of the Generation Awards include Robert Downey Jr., uh, Jamie Foxx, Johnny Depp, Ruth Witherspoon, and Ben Stiller, one of our personal Very favorites. Very cool. All right. All right, time now for Classic Radio. Let's tune in to The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We play these a lot. Gerald Moore stars as uh, Raymond Chandler's ace detective, Philip Marlowe. This is going back to February 5th, 1949 for The Long Rope. Here's Gerald Moore as Philip Marlowe. There was a man with a bad heart. A telephone number scribbled on a cash register receipt and a corpse on the other side of town. But I couldn't see the connection between them until I realized that they were all tied together by the same long rope worth $30,000. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Long Rope. I'd finally wound up a sour case in which I'd been kicked around, disillusioned, and shortchanged. And in my book, a routine like that calls for relaxation. 
So I'd spent the morning sleeping and the afternoon in a Turkish bath, being worked over on the table by Nick Takalakis, a non-talking masseur who untied knots in more muscles than I thought I had. He was trying to tear loose my Achilles tendon when the phone rang. It was for me. Nick wouldn't let me up, so I took it lying down. Yeah? Marlowe speaking. My name is Sidney Vanetta, Mr. Marlowe. I've tried all afternoon to reach you. Oh? Nick, what can I do for you, Mr. Vanetta? I've already made your reservation with American Airlines. You're leaving on the 10 o'clock plane tonight. And you're taking with you a set of pearls for a certain buyer in Chicago. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Vanetta. Maybe I can... No, maybe, Marlowe. I've checked thoroughly on you and find you entirely qualified. Which is important because the pearls are perfectly matched set in a rope valued at about $30,000. The buyer wants them, and I made up my mind just this morning to sell. The proceeds will go to my niece. Lucky girl. Indeed she is. Particularly since I have no respect for her as a woman. She presumes to be a sculptress of all things... But she's my only heir. I'm selling the pearls simply because I know she would, and I can get more for them. Yeah, I... Ooh! Hey, Nick, wait a minute, will you? Why all the hurry, Mr. Vanetta? First, the buyer is leaving Chicago tomorrow. Second, my heart may fail me at any moment. That's the hurry, Mr. Marlowe. I see. Well, I'll take the job, uh, conditionally. But suppose I come out and talk with you. Telephones are deceptive. Very well. Come to 7241 Adams, just below Western. I'll expect you in an hour, at six, sharp. Side door will be open, so let yourself in. Sounds like you're alone out there. I am. I just fired my nurse, a Miss Drew, and as stupid a woman as the earth was ever cursed. But <coughs> well, I shouldn't get excited about it. I've engaged a new one due here at 5.30, but who will no doubt be late. So as I say, Marlowe, when you get here, just let yourself in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, Nick, you better hurry it up. I gotta see a man about a rope worth 30 grand. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A rope worth $30,000. Benetta's place on Adams was a big, fancy, and dirty gray place. Forty years ago, it had been a proud, expensive house. But now it squatted at the back end of a rundown yard like a bitter old man too tired to move. I found the side door unlocked and went in. The hallway was dusky and had the odor of moldy wool. I called Benetta's name but got no answer. So I poked on in until I heard the snapping of an open fire. It came from the library. A big chair was drawn up in front of the fireplace, and there Vanetta sat, his chin sunk deep in his chest and his eyes closed. I coughed, but he didn't hear me, so I stepped close and shook him gently by the shoulder. Mm-hmm. All it took was a gentle shake. He sagged forward and poured out of the chair like stiff syrup. Mr. Vanetta was dead. <laughs> I started for the phone to report the body, but then I heard gravel crunch in the driveway. Someone else was coming in that side door, so I stepped out into the hall and waited. Mr. Vanetta, it's... Uh... Oh. Who are you? Philip Marlowe. Who are you? Steve Temple. I'm Mr. Vanetta's business agent. You're on business now? Yes, I am. It's all the same to you. I came to see Mr. Vanetta regarding some pearls. So if you'll excuse... Oh. Yeah, the pearls can wait. Their owner's dead. So it finally happened, huh? You're taking the news very well, Temple. I've been expecting it every day for five years. You found him, I suppose? Mm-hmm. We had an appointment at six. He wanted me to fly his pearls to Chicago. Uh, what are you staring at, Temple? Uh, why, this uh, bottle of medicine here. What about it? Well, for years, he's kept this stuff beside him in case of an attack. 
Yet, when he actually needed it, it was over here on the sideboard, out of his reach. Ironic, isn't it? Very. He fired Miss Drew, his old nurse, today and didn't expect a new one until 5.30. Say, do you happen to know her name? No one. You mean uh, he's engaged a new nurse? That's right. She's an hour late already. Yeah. Well, for once, that doesn't matter to Mr. Veneta. Say, Temple, are you acquainted with his niece? Vivian Russell? Mm Mm-hmm. Of course. She's a sculptress. There's a studio out on Fountain uh, near Bronson, I believe. She was to get the proceeds from the pearls. I assumed that, although nothing was ever said. She's his only heir. Mm. Where would those pearls be now? He kept them in a wall safe behind that picture there. Consistently against my advice. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Opens with a key. Where would that be? He carried it with him on his watch chain. Why? What are you going to do? Take a look at the pearls and then have them impounded. Yeah, this must be the key. Now let's open it up. It's there, that uh, velvet case. As big as an overnight bag. Must be some string of beads. It is, Marlowe. Here, let me open it. There. All right. It's nothing but tissue paper. Yeah. It's not too surprising. While Temple called the police and tried to keep the details straight on a natural death and an unnatural theft, I went over the room again with a new viewpoint. All that turned up without an easy explanation was one, a cash register receipt for $1.34 with the phone number Republic 2809 penciled on the back. And two, the peculiar position of Mr. Veneta's medicine bottle, which Temple had already noticed. I dropped the receipt in my pocket and told Temple to wait for the law. He gave me his home address and phone number, and I promised to check in with him later and left. The first stop was a phone booth where I dug into the nurse's registries and hit pay dirt on the fourth call. Miss Drew? Yes, we have a Miss Drew. Is she the one who worked for Mr. Sidney Veneta but was fired this afternoon? That's his opinion. Actually, Miss Drew quit. All right, have it your way. Where can I get in touch with her? She's right here where she's been since 3 o'clock this afternoon. What is the nature of your business, sir? Never mind. You've already answered my question. Uh, But look, Mr. Veneta hired another nurse to replace Miss Drew. Is the new girl one of yours? Absolutely not. Mr. Veneta will never get another nurse from this registry or from any other that I know of. You're so right. He's utterly impossible to please in any way, and we're through trying. Goodbye. Well, Miss Drew was in the clear, and Veneta began to focus as a pretty odd Johnny. But I was still trying to figure why the new nurse hadn't shown up when I reached for a cigarette and brought out the cash register receipt with the phone number on the back. So I tried it. Republic 2809. It rang, but nothing happened. I got in my car then and drove up to Hollywood and out Fountain to Bronson, where the only Veneta heir, Miss Vivian Russell, had a studio. It was a converted double garage with a lot of north windows, so her new close-to-the-ground Hudson sat outside in the driveway. The adjoining four-room apartment looked cozy enough, if you liked wading through chunks of marble and eating off of last week's newspaper. Yeah, I was braced for a dowdy Amazon with broken fingernails as I rang the bell. That's why the dainty 118 pounds of taboo-scented blonde who was clad in tan chartreuse yards of whispering silk cut like lounging pajamas caught me as flat-footed as a duck when she opened the door. Hi. Did you want something? Uh, yes. Yeah. My name is Marlowe. I'd like to speak to Miss Vivian Russell. You are? So go ahead and enjoy yourself, Marlowe. Uh... May I come inside? I have some bad news, Miss Russell. Oh, well, sure. Come on in. Now, uh, shall I sit down or just hang on to something? 
Suit yourself. Your uncle, Mr. Venetta, died this afternoon. Oh, his heart finally gave up, did it, huh? Yeah, yeah, but you shouldn't go all to pieces like that, Vivian. Now, wait. He meant nothing to me, but I'm glad his suffering is over. The pearls are missing, too. Really? What happened to them? They were stolen. And don't tell me that means nothing to you, because you're getting the money, 30,000 bucks worth. What? Uncle Sidney intended to give me the money from those pearls? How do you know that? I'm a private detective, he told me. He was my client. Oh, then you're out of a job. Say, how would you like to work for me, Marlowe? I- I'm serious. Now I want those pearls back, you know. Now, for 25 a day in expenses, it's a deal. Now, you tell me something. Who did your uncle hire today to replace Miss Drew? The nurse? Hmm. Why, I didn't even know Miss Drew had been fired. How did you know she didn't quit? With Uncle Sidney? <laughs> Try me again. Republic 2809. That doesn't mean a thing. Hmm. You know, Marlowe, you've got an awfully good head. Are you speaking as a sculptress or just an ordinary chiseler? And what is that crack supposed to mean? You didn't know you were getting the money legally. You might have taken the pearls yourself. Oh, stop it, Marlowe. Okay, client. Well, I'll run along. I've got work to do. All right, but uh, don't forget that all work and no play makes for a dull companion. Yes, and it also makes 25 bucks a day. <laughs> I'll be seeing you. All the way down Sunset to Vine Street, I kept telling myself a buck's a buck regardless. But the idea that I'd been grabbed at stayed with me. Vivian Russell had plenty of motive as a dry land pearl diver, and if that's true, she'd need a patsy just to keep her abreast of the situation. I turned north on Vine and twisted up Beachwood Drive to 2000, the number Steve Temple had given me. He had had two hours of playing 20 questions policeman style, and I figured it was time to check his score. Also, Temple was the man to fill in a few blanks on my new client for me. His place was dark, but I got out anyway and started up the walk to his door. I'd gone about a dozen steps into a tunnel of overhanging shrubs when I heard it. Psst. Hey, you. I turned as a man stepped out onto the walk and came toward me slowly. He was tall, wiry, with a thin, arrogant face that sneered out from under an expanse of forehead big enough for three sets of eyebrows. All shaggy. We're going to have a talk, Mr. Tip. Hey, you're not Temple. Now we both know that. I'm a friend of his. What do you want with Temple? I've got a message for him, but it's personal. Who from? Like I say, it's personal, mister. I'll be back later. Come here. I said I'm a friend of Temple's. If you got a message for him, I'll see that he gets it. Well, okay, then. Tell him that some of his friends are too blasted nosy. No! with the forehead, had a great left jab and a pair of hurdler's legs, and by the time I untangled myself from the brush and got out on the walk again, he was gone. Well, I knew it was a waste of time, but I tried Temple's doorbell twice before I went back to my car. Nothing made sense, except that somebody who knew his way around had stolen a long rope of pearls, and somewhere in the city was a nurse who hadn't shown up on a new job. Beyond that, it was all question marks. I drove down to the filling station on the corner and went inside with the phone. I started to call police headquarters, but instead... Stop the nickel in and dial Republic 2809 again. Just on a hunch. Attorney Barra speaking. Ibarra? I didn't dial you, Ibarra. What? And this is Marlowe. Well, you got me anyway. Now listen, Phil, I hear you're on that Venetta case. Yeah. If it'll help you any, the coroner says definitely he died of a heart attack. No homicide involved. Hmm. Thanks, Lieutenant. Hey, but look, where are you now? In a flat on the corner of Union and 59th Street. Why? Well, is that phone number there, Republic 2809? That's a great piece of deduction. You just called it. Ibarra, listen, I found that number at Vanetta's place this afternoon. What's going on down there? There's a girl here named Betty Larson. Yeah, she's a nurse, right? No, wrong, Phil. She's a corpse. Before that, she was a waitress. Just a waitress. Somebody came to a door and killed her for no apparent reason whatsoever. (laughs) 
was 40 minutes of thick stop-and-go traffic from the time I quit talking to Ibarra until I pulled up near the four stories of faded, sagging tenement on the corner of Union and 59th. But even then, the crazy question that had been weaving in and out of my mind like a 2 a.m. drunk looking for the way to go home was still with me. Why was the telephone number Republic 2809 bracketed by a couple of dead people who, as far as I could see, should have had nothing to do with each other in the first place? Right there for the tenth time running, I drew a complete and unabridged blank. But a minute later, when I climbed out of my coupe and over the bumpers of the half-dozen squad cars that were jammed into the narrow street like so many toy autos that a kid had forgotten about, I quit asking myself riddles and started looking for Detective Lieutenant Ibarra, a quiet man who always preferred fact to fancy. I found him in a cheap but clean uniform crowded room on the second floor, standing a few feet away from the body of Betty Lawson, a girl in a bathrobe who had once been something pretty in her early 20s. Well, Phil, the coroner says she was shot twice in the chest at close range. Died instantly. Is that where she fell, Lieutenant, there near the door? Yeah, looks like she'd just gotten home and into her robe and someone she didn't know knocked on the door. The safety chain was still on when we got here. The windows lead no place. Those chains let a door open just wide enough for the barrel of a gun, is that it? Yeah, but how does all this add with those missing pearls and the rest of that business over on Adams, Marlowe? Not like two and two, believe me. So far, Ibarra, the only question is the telephone number. Tell me, where did this Betty Lawson work? Well, we haven't gotten that far yet. So long, Yeah, so long. Right now, we only know that she was a waitress who stayed here with her brother who was some kind of a student. They got along pretty well together. She was single, too. Lived here since... Oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Tony Barr. Oh, yeah, Mooney. Ryan's Cafe, huh? Ryan himself runs it. Okay. Uh, I'll check it personally, right? Hey, is that where she worked, Ibarra Ryan's Cafe? Yeah, but it's funny, Phil. She lived here since early 1947. And Mooney tells me she worked that 24-hour hash house just as long, yet it's way over on the other side of town in Western. Western and where, Ibarra? The 2300 block. Should be near Washington. Washington, which is only one block from Adams, and that starts to close the big circle. What do you mean, Marla? Well, that the Veneta place is on Adams near Western. Look, Ibarra, how about letting me huddle over a cup of Ryan's coffee before the law steps in, huh? Oh, I got a hunch you want to check, Phil? Yeah. Yeah, that and a cash register receipt. What do you say? Uh, all right, but play it close, fellow. Ryan probably doesn't know about this yet. No? Unless, of course, he squeezed the trigger. Goodbye, Ibarra. I was a half hour getting over to Ryan's Cafe on Weston, which turned out to be a lot of steamed-over plate glass bragging about a 40-cent hot roast beef sandwich and two-foot-high white chalk letters. And inside, the motif was the same. Everything that Mr. Ryan sold was a bargain. I slid onto a shaky stool opposite a cash customer who was something dirty in a torn overcoat buried deep in a handicapper sheet and coffee. He looked up once, grinned no teeth at me, then hollered for Ryan in the kitchen, who said that he only had two hands and would be out in a minute. But before those 60 seconds ran out, I looked around, and over in a corner in a collection of trash piled next to a broom, I saw a very welcome piece of paper. It was a brother of the cash register receipt that I'd found on Sidney Vanetta's desk, a one that had tied Betty Lawson's murder onto the rope of pearls. I turned back to the counter just as Ryan started toward me. He was a little bigger and a little better looking than the average ape, and on his right arm under thick, coarse black hair that was long enough to braid... There was a tattoo of a dancing girl who, if Ryan ever shaved about his wrist, would freeze to death. What'll it be, mister? Coffee? Yeah. And a little information. You know Sidney Vanetta, Ryan? That screwball with a bump ticker over on Adams? Yeah, I know him. Why? 
What's up? His time on Earth, for one thing, he's dead. Too bad. Should have taken it easier. Mm. Cream? No. Pearls. What'd you say? Nothing. Ryan, who brought that tray up to the Veneta place this afternoon? I did. Sure it wasn't Betty Lawson? I'm positive. None of the girls that go near that place. Veneta was hard to get along with. Now you tell me something. What are you, mister? Newshound, collection man, or cop? Getting warm, Ryan. I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I'm thrilled. Good night. Before I finish my coffee? Before I throw you out. I don't like too many questions. Not even easy ones, huh? Like who murdered Betty Lawson? Be- Betty's dead? Yeah. Over in a flat on 59th Street. Shot twice with a 32. When'd you last see her, Ryan? Why? A couple of hours ago when she quit for the night. Marlowe. The cops got any idea who did it? I don't know. Right now, they're looking for a boyfriend. You're crazy. Betty didn't have a boyfriend. Outside of you? Outside of me. So I'm going over to straighten them out now. Mitchie! Mitchie! Yeah? Get out here and take over. Okay. I gotta move fast. No, you don't, Ryan. Betty's dead, remember? Yeah, but whoever did it ain't. Now, don't try to stop me, Marlowe. You'll get hurt. Look, Ryan, why don't you play smart and... Oh, what's the use? Go on, start running. You won't get very far. That's the first portion of the adventures of Philip Marlowe with The Long Rope, starring Gerald Moore, from February 5th, 1949, assert on CBS. We'll get back to that in just a few minutes, Lisa. I want to remind all of our listeners that we have a website for this show. It's www.hollywood360radio.com, and we have our full schedule there. We have pictures of Lisa. We have press clippings. And you know what's really important over there, Lisa? What? Our podcast of this show. You know, this is a syndicated radio show. We're heard on lots and lots of stations across the country. Not all of our stations carry the full four hours, so we provide a podcast for our listeners of all four hours of the Hollywood 360 show, plus a bonus hour of Classic Radio. And that goes up on the Monday after our broadcast. Just go to hollywood360radio.com. Let's take a break, then it's more. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. I'm Dan Jaffe, CEO of Cat's Pride Fresh and Light Premium Cat Litter. Ever wonder why your cat likes to scratch? We'll look into it after this. Hi, I'm Katherine Heigl, film and television actress and producer and CEO of the Jason Debus Heigl Foundation. A supporter of animal rights, our foundation is excited to announce our partnership with Cat's Pride Cat Litter. Cat's Pride has always been a major supporter of the organizations like the American Humane Association and the Anti-Cruelty Society. And today, a portion of every sale of Cat's Pride Fresh and Light Ultimate Care will be donated to support our work protecting the rights and eliminating the needless suffering of animals in shelters across the country. It's great litter and it supports a great cause. Cats don't scratch furniture to be disobedient. They scratch to mark their territory. It's also a good way to sharpen their claws. So don't discourage Kitty's normal feline instincts. Instead, make the item she's been clawing unappealing physically or by scent. Then, get a scratching post and let her indulge that cat scratch fever. Log on to CatsPride.com to download coupons and be sure to join the Cats Pride Club. 
Painful shingles, cracked fingers, red itchy flaky skin, eczema, wounds that won't heal, the list goes on and on for irritating and painful skin conditions. Start the healing today with all-natural Epizen Skin Gel. Recommended by doctors and proven to heal skin, Epizen is guaranteed to work or your money back. Use code RADIO to get $10 off with free shipping by going to epizen.com. That's E-P-I-Z-Y-N.com. Or call toll-free 844-Z-I-N-C for us. Cat's Pride has proudly made cat litter for over 65 years. Three generations of a family committed to creating innovative, top-quality cat litter products. New Cat's Pride fresh and light, lightweight litters contain absolutely no fillers, just natural clay minerals with an odor-controlling system, pure performance. Whether your cat prefers our original fresh and light quick action or fragrance-free, all our clay litters are made using only safe and gentle ingredients without ever compromising on performance. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Now let's get back to the adventures of Philip Marlowe. For the first time that night I felt sure of what I was saying. Because even as Ryan had squared himself away to play Bounce the private detective, I suddenly noticed a friendly face working hard over a stale donut at the far end of the counter. It was Lieutenant Ibarra. And when Ryan tossed his apron aside, grabbed at his coat and slammed out the front door... Ibarra turned and nodded at a short man nearby who was idly picking his teeth with the end of a book of matches. At that, the man dropped the matches into his pocket and left. Then Ibarra moved over to me. Didn't mean to crowd you here, Phil, but after you left, we found out that Ryan and Betty Larson used to see quite a bit of each other. Don't apologize, Ibarra. Probably would have cost me a couple of front teeth if I hadn't noticed you. Warm up the coffee, mister? Yeah, please. You, Ibarra? No, Phil, I got to move now. You see, I don't think Ryan did this. Mm -hmm. I told Mooney to follow him, but not to pick him up. Chances are good that Ryan's heading straight for Betty's apartment to demand that the police find out who killed his girl. So I'm going the other way, to Ryan's house. Maybe another woman in this. Jealous one. But no rope of pearls. Oh, Marlowe, I don't think so. Good night now. Night, Lieutenant. Well, Mitzi, how long have you worked here? Couple of days. But I don't know nothing about Mr. Ryan. I'm a married woman and I... What do you think you're staring at, mister? Maybe something wonderful, Mitzi. Tell me, baby, do you always wear that kind of a uniform when you're working here? Sure. Ryan says this girl should look neat and clean. It helps business. Anything wrong with that? No, no, no. Matter of fact, it might be just the lead I'm after. What are you talking about? Yeah, and if I'm right, baby, the rest of this case will be a cinch. So good night and thanks. You've been a big help, sweetheart. When I got back to the corner of Union and 59th, I took the stairs up to Betty Larson's flat two at a time, crossed the fingers on both hands and prayed that Ibarra was right about Ryan returning to his girl's place. When I stepped into the room a second later, I knew that I'd never doubt the good lieutenant again because standing next to an open window and staring out at nothing was Ryan himself, numbed and red-eyed. I asked him one question, and although his answer was only a couple of words mumbled between trembling lips, it was all I had to know. Now everything. Betty Larson's murder, the death of Vanetta, the guy with the forehead and the missing pearls, the whole shebang was starting to fall together. Oh, come on, baby, be home, please. Hello? Malo, Vivian. Look, honey, I want you to do me a favor. Get hold of Steve Temple and meet me over at your uncle's place on Adams as soon as possible. I need your help. Goodbye. took you so long. I understood you needed our help, but in a hurry at that. 
I had quite a way to come, Temple. Is Vivian here? Yes, Marlowe, Vivian's here, and that means that we can stop counting noses. Now, why do you need our help? Catch someone who stole once and murdered twice. Murdered twice? That's right. You know, it's my guess that whoever stole that rope of pearls also moved Vanetta's medicine out of reach when his heart started skipping beats. Can you prove that? No. No, I can't, but it doesn't matter, really, because the guilty one also killed a party named Lawson. When you pay for one, Vivian, you paid for them all. I don't follow you, Marlowe. Who are you talking about? I'm not sure, but this much is certain. Vanetta called me at five. When I got here at six, he was already dead and the pearls were gone. Now, I figure that whoever took them argued with him first, which makes that person, one, somebody who knew Vanetta, and two, responsible for the old man's death. Then the new nurse couldn't possibly have been the one who stole the pearls. No, but the new nurse could have been the one who overheard everything while standing right here. Haven't you been able to find this nurse? Uh, not yet. But sooner or later, honey, I'm sure we'll catch up to him. Him? Yeah, yes, I, Temple, uh, I said him. Nurse Lawson is a male with a lot of forehead and few ethics. The person you killed was a sister Betty, a waitress, and don't move, uh, Temple. Or I'll be glad that I was forced to put holes in you. Temple's the one? He stole the rope of pearls? Yeah. But this nurse Lawson who saw him do it got in touch with him, right, Temple? It was filthy blackmail. Which you were going to stop by a filthier murder, and you almost did. Because somehow or other you got the right room in the right house on Union and 59th with the wrong party. Isn't that about it, Temple? Yes, Marlowe. That's about it. Oh, leave me alone, Temple. Now, Marlowe, you don't shoot me without going through Vivian first. Dear Vivian, Sydney's precious niece was going to have the pearls all to herself. Don't move, Marlowe. It'll cost Vivian her life if you do. I doubt that very much, Temple. Larson. That's right. Joe Larson, forehead and all. Now, you, Temple, step away from that girl or I'll tear you to pieces. No, Larson, no, no. Now, we can still do business like you said in that note you sent me. I'll split with Shut you. up. You forget two things, Temple. First, you tried to kill me. And second, you did kill my sister. Now, why don't you run for it? Or are you afraid? Which is it? Come on, Temple, talk. I... I am afraid. <laughs> Just about winds things up. Yep. Joe Larson sent up for attempted extortion and Temple... Sent up for good. Mm -hmm. Say, Marlowe, when you called a while ago and said that you wanted Temple and me to help you, did you know then that Temple was the murderer? No, I didn't, Vivian. Then I only knew that whoever had killed Betty Larson had mistaken her for the new nurse. And that the actual nurse was Betty's brother, Joe. Where do you get hold of that, Phil? Well, it started in Ryan's Cafe, Barra, just after you left. I had nurses on the brain, I guess. And when I took a good look at the waitress there, I suddenly realized that her white uniform, white shoes, and white cap could easily confuse a guy like Temple, who also had nurses on the brain. Well, um, I can see a killer making a mistake about appearances, all right, but I still don't understand how it is that the telephone number of my uncle's nurse turned out to be Betty's apartment. Because a nurse did live there, honey. Betty's brother was a medical student, part-time male nurse, and full-time bum. You see... Ryan, who brought food to Uncle Sidney, knew that he needed a new nurse. And he sold him on the idea of Joe Lawson. Because he wanted his girlfriend's brother to have a job. Oh, I get it. Say, I know what I'm going to do with those pearls. Sell them? To the highest bidder. Oh, no, I'm going to break up that set. Break up the set? Yeah, I'd like very much to get a pair of earrings out of them. Oh, and uh, for each of you, uh, a set of cufflinks. Good night, gentlemen. <laughs> When Vivian got into her car, 
aimed it toward a collection of chipped rocks on fountain near Bronson, and waved goodbye. It was nearly three o'clock in the morning. No. After I said so long to Ibarra and started back to my apartment on Franklin, an idea hit me for the first time. A pearl is the result of the irritation of an oyster, a disease. And when you string a lot of diseases together, the result is frequently a plague. <laughs> But it's from plagues like that that I make a living. <laughs> That's what I get for reading books. I wonder if I'll ever go any place where I can wear pearl cufflinks. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman Macdonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Junius Matthews, Louis Van Ruten, Faye Baker, David Ellis, Lillian Byeth, and Ed Begley. Lieutenant Detective Ibarra is played by Jeff Corey. The special music is by Richard Orant. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's the adventures of Philip Marlowe from February fifth, nineteen forty-nine, with the Long Rope, starring Gerald Moore. Also in the cast: Junius Matthews, Louis Van Ruten, Faye Baker, David Ellis, Lillian Byeth, Ed Begley, who is of course Ed Begley Jr.'s daddy, and Jeff Corey, as heard on CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. Well, we have a comedy adventure now, Lisa. We like to play detectives. We like to play mysteries. We like to play dramas. We like to play comedies, and we have a comedy for our listeners right now called "The Halls of Ivy." It was a situation comedy that ran on NBC Radio from 1950 until 1952. It was created by Don Quinn, who co-created and wrote "Fibber McGee and Molly." British husband and wife actors Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume starred. Coleman portrayed William Todd Hunter Hall, president of a small Midwestern Ivy College, and Hume portrayed his wife Victoria, a former musical comedy star who sometimes felt the tug of her former profession. The stories followed the Hall's interactions with students, friends, and college trustees. Others in the cast were Herb Butterfield as the testy board chairman Clarence Wellman, Willard Waterman as board member John Merriweather, and Alan Reed as stuffy English teacher Professor Heeslip. The Halls of Ivy was sponsored by Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, and Ken Carpenter did the announcing. The series received a Peabody Award in 1950 and made a transition to television in 1954. This is、uh, an episode called Student Editorial. It's from January 13, 1950. Here's part one of The Halls of Ivy. And now the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin presents Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Welcome again to Ivy, Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. We suppose most people regard a college president, when they happen to think of him at all, as a man concerned only with scholarly matters, such as a fat endowment or a new football stadium. Now, this is a profound misconception. In most respects, college presidents have the same interests we do. At this moment, for example, Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, the president of Ivy. Sits book in hand, seeking the answer to a question millions of thoughtful Americans are asking themselves tonight. 
who done it. Mrs. Hall is going over the household accounts. Toddy, the telephone. Toddy, please answer the telephone. I hear it, Victoria, but I don't see it. You were the one who wanted the extra-long extension cord installed. I know I did. I thought it would be a convenience. I didn't foresee it as an endless series of rumps through the living room. Do you, uh, uh, do you see it anywhere? Well, it seems to be coming from that part of the room. It's coming from every part of the room. Well, I, well, look under the couch. This, this is one of the most infuriating... Yes, what is it, Penny? The telephone is ringing, sir. <laughs> Thank you. We are trying to find it. We are... I found the cord. That's good. Now, follow it to the end. It's all right, Penny. Yes, sir. Well, answer it, Victoria. Wrong end. <laughs> Not again. This happens every time. I can't... Oh, here it is. I've got it. Well done. Now, let's see who... It stopped... <laughs> yes, it's provoking to think it may have been important mm, It's even more provoking to think it may have been a wrong number Stop worrying over it, Toddy You said you were going to relax this evening Go on back to your mystery Is it a good one? Yes, very intriguing And almost as bloody as Hamlet <laughs> Like another cushion? No, thank you, darling I'm quite comfortable I can reach it Hello? Yes, speaking Oh, good evening Oh, fine, thank you. Tonight? Well, yes, if it's really important. When shall I expect you? Very well, then. Yes. Goodbye. The chairman of the board is coming over, Mr. Wellman. Mm. I suspect he is bad news for me. He sounded so horribly cheerful. Uh, Mr. Clarence Wellman, the stinker? The same. <laughs> Chairman of the Board of Governors and spark plug of the Let's Drive Dr. Hall to an Early Grave campaign. <laughs> oh, dear. Couldn't you put him off? Seems such a shame to let yourself in for such dreadful dullness on your one free night. Well, I doubt that I shall find it dull. Wellman and I share a common interest in... I wonder what sort of a nasty brew he's concocted this time. <laughs> well, go on. Do drop the other shoe, Toddy. You were saying that you and Mr. Wellman share a common interest. A common interest in what? My job. I have it, and he wants me out of it. <laughs> He's been after that for years, pursuing it with the fixity of purpose and the utter lack of humor of a child reading a comic book. Well, there's no point in fretting. Have an apple. Vicky, darling, I love you, but I cannot be soothed with a pippin. <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to soothe you, Toddy. I was merely trying to induce you to eat some fruit. You never eat any at all. It's bad for you. Is there any chance of Mr. Wellman getting you out of your job? Oh, not for the next five years. My contract, as you know, runs through 1955. But he seems to have reasoned that if little drops of water can, in the course of time, produce a phenomenon like the Grand Canyon, I need not complete the thought. Mm. You sure you won't try Pippin? Uh, quite sure, my dear. In my most tranquil moments, I have little taste for apples. I've even less while awaiting the arrival of a colleague who is seeking to de-horse me. Oh, it's very odd, you know. I should detest fruit, too. It figured so prominently in my first professional appearance. Really, Victoria? <laughs> I've always thought of your theatrical career as a series of personal triumphs. Yeah, well, it was. It was, for the most part. But not in this particular instance. 
I was only 15, but uh, rather ripe for my age, when um, a comic named Artie Pinheiro offered me a job as his partner in a variety turn. Fifteen. I wish I'd seen the act. Ah, you'll change your mind when I'll tell you we were billed as Pinheiro and Cromwell, those funny people. <laughs> uh, we broke in a turn at a small variety house in the east end of London. I like to think the performance flopped because of its subtlety. What was it like? Well... I'd feed Artie a line, and he'd retort wittily, and then we'd slosh each other about the head with inflated bladders. <laughs> the harvest of fruit generally occurred after we'd been on about three minutes, and order was not restored until about the sixth chorus of God Save the King. <laughs> and you still like apples. <laughs> well, nine o'clock. Wellman will be here any minute. Oh, Toddy, don't look so concerned. Do you think he's got some particular grudge against you? No, no, I don't think so. No, he's just a sort of an intellectual Sunday driver. He has no destination in mind and resents being passed by someone who has. Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh, there he is now. Well, Penny will let him in. You're not really worrying about his visit, are you? No, but the jawbone of an ass is a legendary weapon. And Mr. Wellman, being equipped with both uppers and lowers... <laughs> Whoops. Oh, good evening, Mr. Wellman. Good evening, Dr. Hall. Mrs. Hall. Good evening. Come in, come in. Thank you. How are you feeling this evening, Doctor? Fine. Never better. Should have seen the dinner I ate. Oh, good. Good. I really tucked it away with both hands tonight, didn't I, Victoria? You certainly did. And imagine no sooner had we left the table and settled ourselves in here than he asked for an apple. Here you are, William. Have one. <laughs> thank you, Victoria. Oh, not at all. Would you care for one, Mr. Wellman? No, no, thank you. Apples do not agree with me. Well, sit down, Mr. Wellman. Thank you. This won't take very long. <laughs> I, I seem to have sat on your book. Oh, no. Uh, I'm sorry, I must have... Uh... Uh, uh, oh, uh, Raymond Harris's latest. Hmm? He died laughing. Finished it? Uh, no, I'm in the middle. I read it last night. Excellent mystery, I thought. Have you guessed yet that the elevator girl Dolores is the murderer? <laughs> no. No, I haven't. I imagine I will very soon, though. <laughs> is there anything else you wish to see me about? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I have here a copy of today's edition of the student's newspaper, the Ivy Bulletin. I, I want to read the editorial to you, if I may. Just listen to this. The statements issued by our Board of Governors resemble the peace of God in that they are beyond human comprehension. Never has so much pap... What? Let me see that. It's quite the most vicious attack I've ever read. Who, who's responsible for this? Young Buckley, I presume. Jared Buckley, the editor. I shall most certainly demand a full explanation. The governors were so incensed when the they learned... The Board knows of this? They know of this editorial? How? I uh, had some other business to take up with them and called an informal meeting early this evening. Uh, this was taken up in passing. I naturally assumed uh, they were already familiar with it. Naturally. Everyone knows that prosperous industrialists spend most of their time devouring student publications. It was an irregular meeting, Doctor. I trust it does not upset you. Oh, not in the least. <clears throat> Victoria, may I have another apple? Oh, of course, here. Yeah. Thank you. I assume the board would be familiar with the editorial because of my own interest in the bulletin. Uh, I was its editor while uh, a member of the class of 1907. 
Imagine my horror when I realized they had heard nothing about this editorial and never would have had I not brought it to their attention. You must have felt dreadful. I immediately tried to undo the damage I had so innocently caused. I told them I felt certain there was some explanation for an editorial which discussed me and the other members of the board in terms one would not apply even to a mongrel dog. Mm, And that failed to calm them? My efforts to pour oil upon the troubled waters merely incensed them the more. Incredible. They uh, instructed me to go to the root of the matter and to announce to you that they would press for Buckley's expulsion. His immediate expulsion. The decision to expel rests entirely with me. Until I know the full story, I refuse even to consider it. The members of the board are entirely justified in their resentment. But so drastic a step is not to be thought of prior to full investigation. Well, of course, that's a matter resting entirely between you and the members of the board, of which I merely happen to be the chairman. Oh, oh, good heavens, Uh, look at the time. I I didn't intend to stay this long. I I must have bored you to death with my dull, sharp talk, Mrs. Hall. Oh, not at all. Your visit is very stimulating. Gave me all sorts of ideas. (laughs) Very kind of you to say so. Uh, Good night, Doctor. Uh, Don't bother to see me to the door. Good night. I want you to know I'm fully aware of how you've gone out of your way in this matter of the editorial. Oh, no, no, don't mention it. I always like to do whatever I can. Yes, that's what I mean. (laughs) Good night. Is it as bad as it sounds, darling? I'm afraid it'll require more than six choruses of God Save the King to Save This Act, Victoria. I must see young Buckley at once to determine exactly what prompted his outburst. I have Grogan locate him. I'll call him now. And... Oh, no. What is it, Toddy? It's gone. That leaping telephone has slipped its leash and run to cover again. Come on, Vicky. You take that side of the room and I'll take this side. Between us, we should be able to run it down by... And that's part one of the Halls of Ivy. We'll listen to part two on our next edition of Hollywood 360, along with the Damon Runyon Theater. But right now, let's take a break. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Welcome back to the show. I'm Carl Amari. To my right, Lisa Wolf, my co-host. And you know what, Lisa? You see how beautiful my skin looks now? Oh, you're always beautiful, Carl. Well, it was kind of getting scaly, my, really? my hands. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm, you know, 25 now. Or, or because it's still winter here. Could be. And all of a sudden, it's all beautiful. You know why? I don't. It's magic. I'm magic using a good. product that is really amazing called Epizen. And it works on all kinds of skin ailments, not just dry skin. What other ones does it fix? Well, I know my husband uses it for eczema, and I think Mike uses it for wounds. Do you wounds have wounds and cuts? Wounds yeah. and cuts. I know it's also good for bug bites and sunburn and diaper rash and canker sores, um, stretch marks, even on your eyelids. So, and it, it also works to help. Shingles, if you have shingles. Shingles as well. It, it seems to be have a blanket effect for all sorts of skin ailments. Right. So here's the deal. Epizen is available to you with a money-back guarantee. And also, you can take $10 off when you mention radio. Go to epizen.com. That's E-P-I-Z-Y-N.com. With a special radio offer, no strings attached, no risk, because you get all of your money back 
if it doesn't work for you. Plus $10 off and free shipping. Just go to epizyn.com, E-P-I-Z-Y-N.com. And here's the number to call for a 24-hour uh, toll-free number, 844-ZINC-FOR-US. That's 844-ZINC-FOR-US. Next time, we're going to tune into the conclusion to the Halls of Ivy, plus the Damon Runyon Theater.